Good morning, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Peter. I'm really excited um, this morning to carry on um, our series looking um, in Matthew 10 that we look at today. Um, but to start with, I just wanted to um, ask the question, does anyone know why it was an important week this week? There's a lot of blank faces. I, I, might, I might be more pointing here. Do any of the men in the room know why it was an important week this week? Valentine's Day. Well done, Dan. The man who's getting married this year knew it was Valentine's Day. Well done. Pass. Tick. Um, it was Valentine's Day. Did anyone do anything specifically special to celebrate? I've had one hand up. Oh, two hands. Oh, three hands up. Well, there's a few. Oh, okay, good. So some people did celebrate. Excellent. Um, I won't tell you how little I celebrated it. Um, but that was under instruction. So I was, I was doing the lovely thing by listening to my wife. Um, you could ask her later if you don't believe me. Um, but it was Valentine's Day, and um, on uh, was it Tuesday, I think it was, February the 14th, that was Tuesday this week, wasn't it? Shows you how much I paid attention. Um, on, um, on Twitter, it came up with someone I follow, um, a daily prayer for the day, talking about Valentine of Rome. And I was struck by this. It's something that I've kind of seen before, but just Valentine's Day that we celebrate in the Western world today with the flowers and the cards and the chocolates and everything else that goes with it, compared to Valentine the person, are very, very different. So I want to just give you a little bit of information about him. Some of you might know this, some of you might not. So he was a Christian priest in Rome. He was, an, he was known for assisting Christians persecuted Emperor, Emperor Claudius II. After being caught marrying Christian couples and helping Christians escape the persecution, he was arrested and imprisoned. And although apparently Emperor Claudius originally liked Valentine, he was condemned to death when he tried to convert the emperor. Valentine was beaten with stones, clubbed, and finally beheaded on the 14th of February, 269 AD. Then a couple hundred year, um, years later, in 496, February the 14th was named as a day of celebration in Valentine's honor. He has since become the patron saint and get this, so Dan accounts for you, for engaged couples, for happy marriages, for lovers, for travelers, for young people, right, and also for beekeepers. <laughs> I, I, I'm not quite sure about that one, so maybe next year for Valentine's, if you are not sure what to get your special of the half, maybe you could get them a beehive, <laughs> or maybe some honey. Maybe that's where we, I don't know, maybe that's where we, the term honey comes from in terms of our loved ones, I don't know. But anyway, um, I, I would digress very quickly there. Um, but I thought it was interesting, the fact that Valentine was someone who we, we never really look at, and unless, you, unless you get really, really sad, someone like me who might study early church history. Um, but he was someone who's persecuted for standing up for what he believed in. And not just standing up for what he believed in, but he was, he was killed because of the gospel. Because he was willing to put his life on the line for the message of Jesus. He was willing to say, that message, the gospel, the good news, is more important than my own life. That Jesus is bigger than me. And as we come back into this passage in Matthew 10 today, I think that's something we just need to hold on to and remember. Saying, there is something bigger in this world than me and my life. 
So we're going to pick up um, in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 24, 27. I just want to pray before we read that as we get started. Father God, we just want to thank you that we can um, come here this morning um, free to um, come and fellowship together and celebrate and raise our voices to declare that you are God, that you are King. And Jesus, this morning we just want to pray that you will meet with us where we are, that you will speak to us, that you will encourage us, that you will inspire us, that you will challenge us, and that we will go out from this place as changed people because we know that we are going with you, that you are with us, and that we have each other to spur us on and encourage us as we go out into the world. And Jesus, I just pray in these next few minutes that you will just speak through the words that I say, that we will hear from you this morning. Amen. Right, so we're picking up um, in Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 24. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that not will, will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. You are not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. We've been looking at that word master this morning, that we call Jesus master. And here he's reminding the disciples of their place. He is their teacher, their rabbi. They are his disciples. Don't get above yourself. Don't think as I am starting to send you out that you've heard enough from me that you can go do it on your own and you can do better than me. He's, he's giving them a, what would sound like quite a strong reminder, but actually in the context, it's very much on point with, of the day of what it meant to be a disciple. And I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at that this morning because I think when we understand the, the system of the day in the Jewish world of being a disciple and having a rabbi, what it meant and what that means for us today. See, how it worked was, at about the age of six years old, boys and potentially some girls as well were educated in their local synagogue and taught by their local rabbi. This time was called Bet Sefer, or House of the Book. Here they would learn and memorize the Torah, known as the Way, the Truth, and the Life. And that was the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would learn them off by heart in Hebrew. And as someone who's currently studying Hebrew, I'm going to tell you that is not an easy task. Exceptionally difficult. But they would learn it off by heart. They could, re they could revise any bits of these first five books. And then at about the age of 10, most would go back to their families and they would learn their family trade whether that be something like winemaking, or farming, or fishing, or carpentry, whatever it was. But for some students who demonstrated a, a natural ability with the text, they would go on to the next level of education, the Bet Talmud, the house of learning. They would learn the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. So what we now have as the Old Testament, they would know and memorize. And not only would they memorize this, but they would also discuss its meaning and they would learn what rabbis had to say about the text. And then about the age of 12 or 13, 
as they went through their bar mitzvah and became adults, most of them again would go back home and learn the family trade. However, the very best students would continue into the Bet Midrash, the house of study. And at this point, they would approach a well-known rabbi and they would ask to be his disciple. And the rabbi would question the student. They would ask him about the Torah, what, what other rabbis had to say about the prophets, and ask them to test what do they know, what, what do they have to offer. What the rabbi really was trying to get at is, can this kid, can this person do what I do? Can they be like me? Do they have what it takes? And if the rabbi thought the student had what it took, then he would say, come, follow me. And they would be a new disciple. The chosen few by this rabbi, who they would leave their family, they would leave the village, their local synagogue, and they would devote themselves to this rabbi, going everywhere they went, learning from them, studying from them. They were trying to be as much like their rabbi as they could. So earlier on in Matthew, when we come to Matthew chapter 4, at the age of 30, which was about the time that rabbis used to start their public ministry, Jesus is walking along the sea. On the beach, not on the sea. He does do that, but not at this point. He's walking by the sea, and he sees Peter and Andrew casting a fishing net. So what do we know about them? They weren't disciples. They were fishermen. These guys weren't the best of the best. They were people who had studied and learned, but they had then gone back and they had learned their family trade. And Jesus looks at them and says, come, follow me. Jesus went out and looked for people who maybe others said weren't the best of the best. And he said to them, come, follow me. In that context, you can kind of understand why the text says they dropped their nets and they followed him. Because all of a sudden, you've got someone saying to them, you are good enough. You can be like me. I can teach you and I can show you how to learn, how to study. I can show you what to say and do. And I think you're good enough. Come and follow me. And so at the beginning of this chapter, we saw that Jesus named his 12 disciples. These are people that others had disregarded. We have fishermen. We have tax collectors. These are ordinary people. And Jesus said, come and follow me. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. See, simply by watching and listening to a prospective rabbi in the time of Jesus, you could almost immediately know that they were their disciples. In Jesus' day, there were four things the disciples did when they were following a particular rabbi. The first was they had to memorize his words. They had to know what he said. They adopted his interpretation of scripture. And all rabbis had slightly different views and stuff. And by being a disciple, he said, I am taking on this for myself. They, in, they, they acted just like their rabbi. They imitated them. They followed their mission, their model of ministry. And they multiplied his teachings in disciples of their own. This was known as taking the yoke of a rabbi. You reflected as disciples a willing submission and adherence to your chosen rabbi's interpretation and application of the Old Testament. 
We see in the Bible it talks about the idea of traditions of men. Disciples did not teach their own interpretation of Scripture. They taught their rabbi's interpretation. This is true for loads of different rabbis that we see throughout the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the New Testament. And we see it as well as they followed Yeshua of Nazareth. The rabbi they followed, they wanted to be like him. See, people had high expectations for rabbi because they taught them how to interpret, but also how to live, how to follow the Torah. Disciples were willing to submit to their interpretation because it was an honor to follow them. And here in Matthew 10, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples to speak his message, his interpretation, his way of thinking. He's saying, I've got this way. I want you to show you what all this meant. Go and tell other people as well. But with it comes a warning. What are you to expect? Caleb, a couple of weeks ago, picked up on this, that, that you are going to face opposition. You are going to face times when you come against people who don't like what you've got to say, who don't like what you are trying to do. You follow in my way, there are going to be people that do not like it. We get then into verse 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In simple terms, Jesus is saying that if me, as your teacher, your rabbi, your master, if they are calling things and slandering me, well, you better expect the same thing. They're not going to let you off lightly because when they see you, they will see me because you speak like me. You act like me. They will know you come from me. So if they're calling me names, they will call you names. When people see you and hear from you, do they see and hear Jesus? I'm just going to leave that there as a challenge for you this morning. Do they see and hear Jesus? Because that's what we are called to be as his disciples. Now, the the term here, Beelzebub, or Beelzebub, depending on what... um, version you look at, quite literally means Lord of the Flies or the Prince of Demons. It refers back to the Philistine God. Remember them of the Old Testament, they were often the the enemies of the Israelites. Goliath was a Philistine. It's connected to the Canaanite God Baal. This is about as bad an insult, if you're a Jewish person, as you can get. By calling someone Beelzebul, you are calling them the devil. You are calling them the exact opposite of who Jesus was. They are saying Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the the long-awaited king that we've been waiting for to come and save us. But you have people saying he's nothing but the devil. In Mark um, 3, um, verse 22, it says, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said, He has Beelzebul, and by the rule of the demons, he casts out demons. Um, a little bit later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 12, he knew what they were thinking and said to them, every kingdom is divided against itself, is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come to you. He is going around doing some remarkable things, healing people, casting out demons. 
And people are left with a choice here. Whose authority is he speaking from? Whose authority does he speak on behalf of? And many of them want to cast him aside, dismiss and say, Beelzebul, from the devil. Why? Because they don't want to accept the truth and reality of what it means if Jesus is starting to be who he says he is. You're going to face opposition. People aren't always going to want to hear what we've got to say. It's disruptive. Jesus' message is disruptive. Are you ready for disruption? Are you ready to be disruptive? It's not always easy to hear. If you go forward in the story in Acts chapter 11, it's in Antioch that the first apostles and followers of Jesus are called Christians, quite literally meaning mini-Christ, followers of Jesus, disciples, because their behavior, their actions, their speech were just like Jesus. See, they didn't give themselves that name. It was actually a slander from outside the church. It was people trying to dismiss them, to call them Christians. They're just mini-Jesuses. We want nothing to do with them. It wasn't a badge of honor, although they took it as one, because people could so easily identify them as disciples of Jesus. They, they were so obsessed with him. They talked just like him. They did things that he did. They acted just like him. And, and that's what being a Christian is. That's what being a disciple is. When we hear that, come, follow me, we drop everything and we follow him. We want to be just like him. But then we go on to verse 26 and 27. And Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Jesus has spent some time, even before um, the verse we looked at this morning, when we looked at last week, outlining to his disciples that if you follow me, you're going to come up against opposition. Whether that be physical attack, emotional stress, slander, I mean, called things. You're going to be discredited. People are going to want nothing to do with you. And so his instruction after all that is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm terrified. I mean, it's much easier said than done, Jesus. Don't be afraid. You know, it's actually one of the most common commands throughout the Bible. And I looked this up. I haven't fact-checked this and counted them all, so you can take Google's word for this. But apparently, there are 365 times that the phrase, do not be afraid, is in the Bible. So you've got one instance every day you guys can go away and have a look at why we should not be afraid. Implored, do not be afraid. I, I, when I was preparing for this, my, my, my thoughts went straight to Mary, who, as a young girl, has an angel appear to her in physical form in front of her so she can see, and he says, don't be afraid. Oh, and oh, by the way, you're going to be a mother, and you're going to be a mother of the saviour of the world, and your husband, who's not actually your husband yet, doesn't know about this yet. Don't worry, we'll tell him, and he'll be cool with it. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. How? How on earth, in this kind of situation, if we're going to come up against this kind of opposition, are we not to be afraid? How can Jesus say that? Well, first, it's an encouragement to his disciples here. 
He is saying to them, what I'm telling you is true. Go tell people and they will see that it is true. You will be vindicated in this. What is currently hidden will come to light. And how can he say that? Well, he knows soon from this, his death and resurrection will reveal everything that he said is true. There is hope in that, that you will be vindicated because you may look and go make a fool of yourself right now. But don't worry, guys, because very soon I will reveal all of this to be true. Everything I've said about myself, everything that I'm coming to do, that I'm coming to say that there is a God out there who loves you and wants to save you, that it is coming true in me and I will show that to be true. There is that encouragement there. And for us, we already have that encouragement going, but we already know that it's happened. We can go and speak this truth because we know it's already real. We're not speaking to something that is going to happen. We are speaking about something that's already happened. So we have that encouragement that people might not like it. People might not always want to hear this, but we know we're already speaking truth. Shout it from the rooftops. Announce to the world that Jesus is alive and that he saves. I like that song. I'm not sure we're doing it this morning. I should have maybe suggested it. But there is also a promise here that he goes on and he says time and time again to the disciples. You are not alone. I will be with you. Throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus say this. And, and as he comes to the end of his ministry, and the disciples start to question about, well, when you say you'll be with us, but you're also saying you're going, where are you going? He's like, no, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going because when I do, the Spirit will come on you and empower you. And that will give you the launch pad to go into the world and make disciples. And that's what we see as we get to the end of the Gospels and we get into Acts. And we see that the disciples don't always get it right, particularly Peter. I'm always encouraged, my namesake, that definitely the one who, he, he's all guns blazing, but often says the wrong thing and quite often does the wrong thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. I'm allowed to make mistakes sometimes. They don't always get it right. But as we see, once Pentecost comes and they are filled with the Spirit, they can step out in boldness, preaching to thousands, going to the whole of the known world at the time, proclaiming this message. Because the Spirit of God is in them, transforming them from the inside out. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians, if you are in Christ, then you are a new creation. The old is gone. You are alive in Christ. See, being a Christian doesn't just mean believing in Jesus. It means dropping your fishing net and following him and slowly being transformed to be just like our rabbi. And then we're encouraged to shout it out from the rooftops. I want to read um, the passage again. I'm going to read it now from the message, just because I think it slightly just gives, I think, a fresher flavor of, of what is being said. And then I want to sort of finish in there, just looking at one or two quick things. So again, looking at uh, Matthew 10, chapter 24 to 27, but this time in the message version. And it says, A student doesn't get a better desk than their teacher. A laborer doesn't make more money than his boss. Be content, pleased, even, 
when you, my servant, my students, my harvest hands, get the same treatment I get. If they call me the master, dungface, and that gives a context of just how ridiculous a slander it was, what can the workers expect? Don't be intimidated. Eventually, everything is going to be out in the open, and everyone will know how things really are. So don't hesitate to go public now. And the disciples didn't. We move forward from here, and the very earliest stories of um, the apostles after Jesus returned is Stephen. Stephen is in boldness, proclaiming the message of Jesus, and that causes a mob with stones. And he's left there with a choice. Do I shut up and go? Or do I keep speaking and face the stones? I wonder if I'm in that position, or you in that position, what that choice is. Because it's really easy to say, oh yeah, I know exactly what I do. But in that moment, would you? Have you got that boldness? Do you feel that you can declare with assurance and assertive that, yeah, Jesus is alive. And I'm willing to face whatever may come to declare that. And we see that and we, in opposition. If you go through the early church history time and time again, they are faced with it. Go back to Valentine. He's faced with the same decision. And he's like, no, I'm all out. I'm all out for Jesus. There is no holding back. Because Jesus is bigger than me. I want to be like my rabbi. Are we prepared to speak light into darkness? If I could ask the band to come back up just as we finish. And say, so we were left really very much with a choice here. The disciples called Jesus teacher, rabbi. Many of the religious figures of the day called him Beelzebub, the devil. My question for you this morning is, who do you call Jesus? Who do you say that he is? One, it's a simple choice just to dismiss him, to throw him off. He's not really that important. Or do we take the narrower path, the more challenging path, where we may face opposition, We may face battles. We may face people discrediting us and not wanting to have anything to do with us. Where they'll throw you out. But we know there is truth. And there is a God who saves. I'm just going to pray to end. And just as I'm praying, I just want you to reflect on that question. And there may be for... Um, that's a question maybe you haven't answered ever before, truly. And if that's you, I just want you to, to spend a moment maybe just praying this prayer with me. And if not, maybe this is a time for us just to actually go back and go, Jesus, am I really that on fire for you? Am I really willing to face whatever opposition will come? Because I know that you've already done it all, that you have already saved. And the world may not like it. It may be a disruptive message, but it's a message that I know the world needs to hear. Am I willing to put myself in a position to 
to allow myself to be your vessel for people to hear. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you came to be our rabbi, our teacher. That you showed us the way to live. That you spoke with boldness that we'd never seen before. That you did things that people had never seen before. And we thank you that the Spirit of God, that you live in us, empowering us to go out and do things that on our own we can never do. And Jesus, if we've never, if we've never actually said that we want to be your disciple, the invitation is there this morning to say, Jesus, I hear that call to come follow you, and I want to follow. Teach me how to speak, how to act. Teach me when in times that are difficult, the words to say. Allow me to be filled with your spirit that you can empower me. That when we go from this place, we are not going alone, but we are going with your spirit with us. We are going to to speak your message and to do your good works. We are going because we know there is a hurting world out there that we want to see transformed into your likeness. We want to see your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you promised that we are not alone, that you are with us. Your spirit goes with us. Amen.